Welcome to Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring philosophical and interpretive approaches to the history of popular music. In this episode, we discuss the parlor as a special room in the 19th century American home and as a privileged space for listening to and making music. Parlor ballads are, along with minstrel songs, among the first important American musical products, and they help shape the modern notion of the American family. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. episode two of this podcast, we claimed that there were roughly eight prerequisites for the sheet music industry to have much of an impact in the United States of the 19th century. The first prerequisite was a mechanical means for producing mass quantities of music. Of course, the printing press was developed by Johannes Gutenberg in the 15th century, but the early 19th century witnessed several major advances in printing technology. Lord Stanhope built a press entirely from cast iron in 1800, requiring far less force to make a printed impression and doubling the output of the Gutenberg-style press. By 1818, Friedrich Koenig added two vital innovations. He ran the printing press through through steam power and replaced the flatbed with the rotary motion of cylinders. This allowed the machine to run with very little manpower and push the paper off the bed after printing. He even developed a method for printing both sides of the paper at once. Further advances in the steam press were introduced by Richard M. Ho in the U.S. in 1843. Now paper could be fed continuously into the machine as it worked, allowing for a production of a million printed pages a day. The shift to wood pulp and automatic paper machines, as opposed to the heavy toil involved in paper production previously, made paper products far more affordable, uniform in quality, and reliable. The early 19th century was a golden age for books and sheet music. The second prerequisite was copyright protection, and we discussed the Copyright Act of 1790 in Episode 2. We saw it offered relatively meager protections, and we will have to return to the vexed topic of copyright law and how it develops with respect to music in later episodes. The third prerequisite involved distribution channels, and we've mentioned how integral internal improvements were to the 1820s. By the close of that decade, the U.S. had the steamboat the uh, improved national road, several canals, including the heavily used Erie Canal, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. There were also major improvements in the postal service and the establishment of uniform cost for prepaid postage stamps, which made shipping materials far cheaper than the unpredictable and costly cash-on-delivery practices that were already in place. In short, the nation had developed an artery system by the end of the 20s that allowed for the flow of goods and products from the eastern seaboard into the interior and the flow of raw materials in the opposite direction. This contributed to a rise in consumerism, our fourth prerequisite for a music industry. More goods were available than ever before, and merchants sought ways to increase the demand for those goods. This episode will largely concern the development of a consumerist demand as it related to music. We will see that part of the strategy was to manufacture desire as much as the products. In other words, part of what I sell you when I sell you sheet music, is an image of yourself, an image I encourage you to literally buy into by purchasing my product. We're going to come back to this point. In 
The fifth prerequisite was the development of a national taste. If I'm going to sell my music widely, it can't be limited to local appeal. I have to draw in the largest crowds possible. This prerequisite is, as we will soon see, tied to the previous two. The ease of transportation created a national culture that didn't entirely displace local culture and distinctions and differences, but did create a stronger national cohesion. By 1852, Catherine Sedgwick could write, Quote, the progress of civilization and the facilities of communication have leveled all distinctions. There is no village so secluded now as to be surprised by the fashions of the town and scarcely a country-bred lady to be detected by her rusticity, End quote. Even relatively distant and rural towns now had imported items from France and England. The country star store was falling out of history to be replaced by shops with more cosmopolitan pretensions. The sixth prerequisite was the proliferation of musical instruments. These became more widely disseminated and available in the 1820s through the 40s, again, owing in part to technological advancement. Eli Whitney, the man who invented the cotton mill, uh, cotton gym, had uh, demonstrated the reliability and affordability of machines made with interchangeable parts in 1800. This was soon applied to the manufacture of musical instruments. Certain instruments constructed in this manner, like the accordion, began to spread throughout towns and villages as more and more citizens flowed toward the west. Other instruments that were relatively inexpensive began to be in vogue in the 1820s, including the German flute. In the late 1820s, pianos were sold in Pittsburgh, then considered a frontier town, and by 1848 there was a huge market for both pianos and sheet music in California for the gold miners. By the Civil War, a piano or organ could be found in most homes, not just those of the middle class and the capitalists. This was true also among several black homes after the Civil War. Booker T. Washington, in several speeches and letters, lamented the fact that so many black families spent their strained earnings on luxuries such as music and learning French instead of the necessities of a more practical life. But one can't help but have sympathy for the families that Washington criticizes. They were hoping to participate more effectively in the American populace by showing that they were capable of participating in its middle-class culture. Our seventh prerequisite was the development of compositional styles that are not above the musical attainments of a fairly large sector of the musically inclined public. This is a major part of our story today. What Americans desired, and, and we saw this a bit with our discussion of minstrelsy, was an engaging form of music that avoided the aristocratic, while not simply reiterating the folk tropes that had long been established among the people. They wanted something new. Something that had an element of worldliness about it, but that did not seem ostentatious, did not seem as though they were, quote, putting on airs in performing it. They wanted sentiment and feeling, but not contrivance and mere display. As we will see, the parlor song fit this bill rather nicely. Finally, the eighth prerequisite was musical literacy, and this was clearly on the rise at this time. In 1838, Lowell Mason encouraged the teaching of music in the public schools in Boston, and this trend soon spread throughout many parts of the nation. Basic musical literacy and some amateur skill on at least one instrument was soon widespread. 
To sum up, the period spanning the 1820s to the Civil War witnessed a veritable explosion in the prevalence and popularity of emergent forms of commercial song. Common people in these decades were far more likely to participate in music making and take pride in careful listening than the generation of the revolutionaries. The John C. Calhouns of the nation, who took a certain perverse pride in lacking a musical ear, were diminishing. The question then emerges, what kinds of music would capture this newly invigorated national musical ear? And how did people employ that music to buttress and develop an image of national and personal ideals? We saw one potential answer to this in minstrelsy. The parlor song offers another. Family structure in the United States was under particular pressure in the early 19th century owing to the shift from the predominance of agrarian life to the increasing prominence of urban life and industrialization. This allowed children to make their own way in the world by getting jobs in factories rather than remaining on the family farm. There were advantages to this shift. The U.S. never had a tradition of passing the entirety of a property to the eldest son. Typically, the father divided his land among all of his sons. This obviously led to an ever-decreasing amount of property for each of the inheritors over generations. Such splintering of land could not be maintained. Also, the increasing presence of women in the workforce provided opportunities for unmarried women who could now sustain themselves rather than remaining with their families as spinsters. By 1816, a single cotton factory in Lowell, Massachusetts, employed roughly 5,000 young women. The disadvantages, of course, included the diminishing of patriarchal power, the dissolution of strong family ties, and a lessening of the impact of family tradition and thus family identity. Meanwhile, as men began to work more in business and away from the home, as opposed to farmers working the land on which the family lived, there arose an ever-sharper divide between the public sphere and the private sphere. The public sphere was the realm of men and business. It was the site of the free exchange of ideas and commerce, and thus it was the cornerstone of the 19th century view of democracy. This was a realm ordered through self-interest, the desire for profit and reason. The private sphere, on the other hand, was the realm of the mistress of the house, the wife, and respite from the outside world. It was the site of interpersonal connection and sympathy. It was the cornerstone of the 19th century view of personal identity, as opposed to fulfilling a role in the public world. This was a realm ordered through cultivation of the self, a desire for expression and emotion. And yet, the two spheres were not entirely divorced from one another. Part of being a well-rounded member of the middle or upper class or an aspirant to those classes meant putting your private refinement on limited public display. This was the role that the parlor served. The parlor, deriving from the French parler, meaning to speak or to chat, was also termed the, quote, best room, and that is what it was intended to be. The 19th century parlor was the location in the home that was set aside to receive guests. Many architects of the, of the time complained that the parlor, a room used infrequently and not intended for day-to-day living, took up a rather outsized portion of space within the house. 
The family didn't inhabit the parlor. They entertained there. And when there were no guests, that room was preserved by avoiding it. The parlor contained family heirlooms and mementos that were displayed to delight and impress guests. It was meticulously appointed, truly the best room um, in the house, uh, in order to demonstrate taste and feeling. This was still the domain of the woman of the house, but the parlor was the site of her activity as ambassador for her home and her husband. It was part of the social expectation of such visits that the guests would dote on the hostess. It was all a strange kind of performance. Guests were meant to feel at home in a room that was rarely used by the people that actually lived in the home, a room that by design was unlike the remainder of the home. That artificial at-homeness then served as a reflection of the qualities of the wife who served as a reflection of the qualities of the husband. The quality of the guests reflected well on the hosts, and the quality of the hosts meant that being their guest was more desirable. The parlor was thus a kind of social hall of mirrors. Central to most 19th century parlors was the piano and music. Musical performances by members of the family or invited guests were a prominent part of a social evening, and of course the proper tone had to be set by the music. Vulgar music suggested vulgarity on the part of the family. Music that was too highbrow suggested presumptuous, aristocratic airs. The music was not mere entertainment. It participated in that hall of mirrors. When carefully chosen, it reflected the production of identity in which the family was engaged. One genre suited those needs admirably, and that was the parlor ballad. arching ends that the parlor ballad attempted to achieve as a social form, and as we briefly trace the development of this genre, we want to pay special attention to these ends. First, the parlor ballad helps to construe an understanding of the role of emotion in the formation of the modern self. In agrarian life, each farm can be considered its own fiefdom. The children and extended family are subordinate to the patriarch, and each farm is, at least ideally, separate from its neighbors, an entity unto itself. In practice, of course, neighbors cooperated and interacted in all sorts of ways. But the ideology of the agrarian life was social independence and almost total familial dependence. Now that children were increasingly making their own way in the world, they were free of the overriding patriarchal power. And as the men of households were more involved in business, their ties to their neighbors and colleagues became ever more pervasive and important. Thus, now, the ideology of modern life involves social dependence and familial independence. In the agrarian situation, one's personal emotional life rarely had to be on display, or at least that display had less of an impact on how one made one's way through the world. If I am a subsistence farmer, and I'm angry all the time, you might simply avoid visiting me. So what? That has relatively little impact on how much food I'm able to produce. Modern life is different. If I'm angry all the time, I may very well lose business get fewer opportunities, and thus have a harder time making a living. My emotional comportment has a direct bearing on my livelihood. 
The cultivation of a socially acceptable emotional life is integral to the functioning of modern life divided between public and private spheres. Displaying that acceptable, acceptable emotional life is one goal of the parlor ballad. Secondly, and in accordance with the first goal, the parlor ballad presents an idealized version of the woman. The woman, as we saw, was under a particular kind of strain in 19th century America. As a daughter, she was increasingly independent of both her father and potential suitors. She could make her own way in the world. And while such a life had several disadvantages, she wasn't consigned to the choice between marriage or spinsterhood. As a wife, however, the woman didn't enjoy much independence. Her property belonged to her husband, and while there were laws in place that allowed for divorce, it was not generally a socially sanctioned option. The wife was an adjunct to her husband, largely removed from the public sphere, but this relative removal became part of her power, the power of allure and withdrawn mystery. The parlor contributed to that mystique. Men saw married women and their marriageable daughters in this rarefied space that celebrated taste and feeling. Accordingly, women were increasingly identified with the aesthetic. They became living works of art. The parlor ballad capitalizes on this idealization of the woman. As we will see, the woman takes on an almost ghostly quality. She is just beyond our grasp. She occupies a realm removed from worldly ambition, removed from public property. As an ideal, the woman comes to represent something the man gains, not through business acumen, but rather through the richness of his emotional life, and she deepens and furthers that emotional life. I choose the image of a ghost purposefully. The 19th century ideal of the woman is spectral in quality. She is too pure to occupy the real world. Having her is like grasping the wind. And so there is a, always a sense of loss involved in the 19th century view of love. Always something unattainable. This is why the image of the woman, and the loved one in general, is so often connected with death in these songs. A central text in the development of the parlor song was Thomas Moore's Irish Melodies. These are traditional Irish melodies with new texts written by Moore. The first volume was published in England in 1808. The melodies are often heavily edited to suit the new poetry, and Moore even developed a relatively rough accompaniment that was improved upon by editors and musicians such as Sir John Stevenson. Moore was a publishing juggernaut from 1808 to 1834, releasing many volumes of both secular and religious song, and these were incredibly popular in the United States. Unlike the songs from the British Pleasure Gardens of the 18th century, which feature narrations from a third-person point of view, an outsider perspective on the emotions of the protagonist, Moore's songs are first-person accounts of feelings and thoughts. They provide an insider perspective on life's vicissitudes, its joys and its disappointments, the delight of early love and the sting of betrayal. These songs are also heavily imbued with nostalgia, largely because Moore believed that Ireland had a glorious past that was now entirely obscured by the bitterness of present domination by a foreign power, meaning, of course, England. Moore claims that, quote, the loss of independence very early debased our character. End quote. Music, according to Moore, is the proper vehicle for such bitterness, insofar as he claims, quote, the language of sorrow is in general best suited to our music, end quote. 
Of course, that sense of nostalgia applied not simply to nationalistic concerns, but also to Moore's portrayal of love. Let's listen to a rendition of one of his most famous and celebrated songs, Believe Me If All Those Endearing Young Charms. Believe me if all those endearing young charms Which I gaze on so fondly today Were to fade by tomorrow and fleet in my arms Like fairy gifts fading away Thou would still be adored at this moment fairy gifts fade as they will and around the dear ruin each wish of my heart would entwine itself fervently still the poem to restore the confidence of his wife when she became ashamed by the alterations in her complexion owing to smallpox. While the lyrics suggest that love is enduring, they situate that durability within a context of fleeting time. Those endearing young charms will not last, quote, like fairy gifts fading away. Notice the reference to fairies, intangible mythic creatures as a symbol for the ephemerality of beauty. Even this song, making a bid for the permanence of love, is grounded in nostalgia. Now, nostalgia is a tricky emotion. It can easily become debilitating, life-denying. Why would this be an appealing emotion in the U.S. where there was a relatively shallow national history, little in the way of an extended collective memory, and no grand era of the past that was not surpassed by the promise of the future and the relative advantages of the present? Part of the appeal of Moore's songs in the U.S. was their seemingly untutored qualities. They exuded, for these listeners at least, a directness and artful simplicity that enticed an anti-aristocratic society that sought distinction without class and resented and distrusted the fact that classes were clearly forming despite the national ideology. The element of nostalgia seems to address two fundamental 19th century American concerns. On the one hand, nostalgia is always an irrecoverable past, and indeed an idealized past, a past that perhaps never truly existed in the manner in which it is being imagined. The U.S., with its relatively shallow collective past, suffered from the kind of existential rootlessness that sought comfort in nostalgia. On the other hand, the eternally distant and unattainable idealized figure of the woman not only became a pervasive image of the 19th century as we have seen, it served a concrete purpose in American society. It suggested that the private sphere, the home life of a neighbor or a colleague or a friend, was there to be glimpsed but not fully grasped. And this, in turn, made men long for their own bit of ever-withdrawing bliss to be found in the ideal of the perfect wife. by the moonlight 
and it all passed away Beautiful dream Queen of my song List while I woo Thee with soft melody God on the cares of life's busy throng Beautiful dreamer, awake unto me Beautiful dreamer, awake unto me was Beautiful Dreamer by Stephen Foster. Again, notice the invocation of another world, in this case a dream world. Quote, Starlight and dewdrops are awaiting thee. Sounds of the rude world, heard in the day, led by the moonlight, have all passed away. The public sphere is the arena of noise and the bustle of activity. The ideal woman represents a respite from all that, a dream landscape that eliminates worry and provides escape from life's busy throng. Foster used the parlor ballad to build a position of relative prominence as a composer. Indeed, we often think of Foster as the father of American song. His work provided a template for music that was relatively easy to sing and play and emphasized sentiment without simply indulging in sentimentality. Foster had combined the nostalgia of the parlor ballad with the imagery of minstrelsy in songs like Old Ned from 1848. The South became for Foster, who was a northerner, a bastion of the domestic pastoral dream where one maintained a patriarchal and matriarchal connection with the land, enriched by the land, without becoming subservient to it. Now, the parlor ballad, as he developed it, began to take on several musical characteristics. Let's emphasize eight of them. First, they're mostly made of diatonic melodies of a limited range. Therefore, anyone can sing them. He often privileged pentatonic melodies. Uh, and the inspiration here obviously came from Thomas More's Irish ballads. Uh, 
Secondly, he employs mostly just root position, tonic, subdominant, and dominant harmonies. That is, chords built on the first, fourth, and fifth degrees of the scale. Uh, very simple chords and very simple uh, arrangements so that anyone could play them at the piano. Third, he emphasize, he places a general emphasis on the subdominant, uh, and many of his songs even climax on four, which is a kind of uh, paradoxical notion, because four is typically used to create a lack of tension, to create a, a form of relaxation. So what he's doing is creating a kind of climax into relaxation, into repose, right? As opposed to the more forward-pushing, future-oriented drive of the dominant, the four chord is almost reflective. It's looking back to the past. The fourth characteristic is he employs mostly four-measure phrases with usually some kind of uh, surprising harmonic move in there, although usually the surprise is, is uh, within scare quotes merely. It's not a real surprise. He sticks very closely to those three basic chords. Fifth, there's, uh, in the parlor ballads, a frequent use of melodic leaps in order to express emotion. You can hear that quite clearly in Beautiful Dreamer. Sixth, there are occasional but very limited moments of chromatic decoration. Seventh, he tends to use relatively slow tempi. And then eighth, he focuses on the sixth degree of the scale when he's writing in a major key especially. Both Beautiful Dreamer and the, the famous song uh, Genie with the Light Brown Hair, and of course many, many others by Foster, are in a major key and yet exude a certain melancholy. Let's listen to just the opening phrase of Genie as an example. So why does it sound so sad? If this is a song in a major key, one that really doesn't modulate or even tonicize uh, the relative minor and, and really only gently touches on minor chords at all, then how does it manage to sound so strikingly melancholic? The answer seems to lie in Foster's exploitation of the relationship between scale degrees 6 and 5. That's what you're hearing in the opening. So in this case, since we're in the key of F major, it's D moving to C. Every single phrase of this song, with the sole exception of the first part of the B section, features the melodic move from D as an upper neighbor to C as a relatively stable pitch. The constant association of the sixth and fifth scale degrees in the melody of Genie signifies the narrator's longing for his lost love, another act of nostalgia. The sixth scale degree is both relatively consonant, for example, above the tonic and the bass, it's the, the, the major sixth is a consonant interval, but it's also a tendency degree, meaning that it gravitates toward resolution to the fifth degree. It doesn't want to stay on D, the melody wants to go to that C. Therefore, the sixth degree seems to resist the pull of the tonic while being forced inevitably to collapse onto it. One way of reading the use of 6-5 as a recurring motive in this song, then, is to hear it as the narrator's inevitable collapse into reverie over the love he presents himself as once having, but that he no longer enjoys. He may want to at least gently resist thinking of her, but he can't help himself. Let's hear one more example of a parlor ballad, this time from the Civil War era, by songwriter and publisher George Frederick Root.
shall leave, but we shall miss him. There will be one vacant chair. We shall Melancholy and nostalgia are inspired by the loss of a young man who died in the war. His chair remains vacant. He will return no more. Again, take notice of the familiar sentiment. We've all experienced loss, painful loss. Recognizing that pain is not an indulgence, it's an admirable sentiment. The experience here is centered in the home, in the private sphere. The chair where he used to sit is empty, and the song registers this loss. The form and harmonies are simple and relatable. This is music that nearly anyone can perform, that addresses emotions that require expression. The song provides a mild form of catharsis. Root deliberately composed for a wide audience. He wrote, quote, I saw at once that mine must be the people's song. Still, I'm ashamed to say I shared the feeling that was around me in regard to that grade of music. It was not until I imbibed more of Dr. Lowell Mason's spirit and went among the people of the country that I saw things in a truer light and respected myself and was thankful when I could write something that all the people could sing. Notice the reticence here. At first he's somewhat ashamed. His pride as a composer suggests that he should compose more ambitious music. But then he thinks about music as education. He thinks about music as reaching out to the people and he changes his mind. If music is to have any effect, if it is to serve any purpose, it must be played and sung and heard and purchased. Music that would sell had to navigate between the formulaic and the refined, the immediately popular and the austere. It had to be familiar and yet new. It had to engage the heart as well as the mind. 
Root claimed that an acquaintance of his, an Englishman, extolled, quote, the wholesome middle ground in which you in America greatly excel, end quote. This middle path was the one forged by the parlor song. It wasn't vulgar in the manner of the minstrel song, and it didn't have the pretensions uh, toward class, toward the upper class, in the manner of the American reception of opera and the symphony. Moreover, and this is perhaps its most compelling element, the music sold you an image of yourself. In buying it, you were buying an ideal, an ideal you hoped to live up to. The parlor song presented an image of the consumer as sensitive, but not maudlin, as refined, but not ostentatious. And within that image resided yet another, the woman, the wife, or the loved one, as the unattainable, yet integral, spiritual adjunct to your becoming who you really are. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sound Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. If you wish to know more about this podcast, please visit www.chadwickjenkins.com and click on the page for Sound Philosophy. Also, feel free to write me at cjenkinsmusicology, all one word, at gmail.com. That is cjenkinsmusicology at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and hope to hear from you soon.